This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host, and today I'm talking to Helen Zuman. She's uh, written a book called Wait, uh, Mating in Captivity. I was about to say Waiting in Captivity for some reason. Um, it's a memoir and a book that I really enjoyed. How are you, Helen? I'm doing great. How are you doing, David? I'm pretty well. Um, so, you know, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, this, uh, for me, this book, uh, comes at a you know at a time when I'm thinking a lot about you know the way that human beings relate to each other and this was this is your story about joining a commune uh, when you were pretty young fresh out of college basically mm-hmm. um, and I have to ask you because you called it mating in captivity it, was that really the you know was the idea of having a relationship uh, was that so much underlying what you were after, or was it just the w- the fact that you landed at this particular place called Zendik Farm, uh, which was involved, you know, which you know seems to be the the relationship issue was a core uh, core one for this particular commune. And I'm just curious whether that was what got you there, or was it this sort of accidental. Uh, landing spot because you were looking for a communal space? Well, I I set out on my quest for uh, community out of a desire for meaning and purpose and belonging, as well as practical skills. Um, I wanted to understand how to grow food and get water and build shelter and all those things. So that was what what impelled me on this search. I wasn't thinking about finding a mate or romance or anything, but once I arrived at Zendik and I learned that the Zendiks had these interesting rituals for arranging dating and the sexual encounters, I was... I became more interested in it. That wasn't on my mind, but then when it came up, I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. And there are all these hot guys here. And that became one of the reasons that I wanted to stay. And this place, it's interesting. I had not heard of Zendik before reading your book, um, which sort of surprises me. I think I should have known about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there were 60 people in it at the time that you ended up there. That's a pretty good-sized commune. Yeah, yeah. That was It was about 60 when I arrived. It went up by maybe 10 or so that first winter I was there. And then in the next few years, the population gradually decreased. By the time I left in 2004, there were about 35 people left. So you were there five years. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I think it's not giving away anything to say that um, the book, you know, because you point this out at the very beginning of the book, that it was, uh, it, it started out as one thing for you, but it ended up that you felt like you were in a cult by the time you know, it's, it's not clear when you really figured out you were in a cult, but probably when you're in it, you don't feel like you're in a cult. But um, that it, it, the way it was organized, it was very interesting. It was sort of organized to take advantage psychologically of the people who were there. 
um, you know, to, to empower the rulers essentially and disempower and kind of, uh, enforce allegiance by the members. Um, and it's so interesting to think about that in terms of, um, you know, this accidental, you, you know, you just accidentally landed there and found yourself, uh, kind of sucked into this gradually. Yeah. When I arrived, I knew almost nothing about cults. My, my only association with cults was this documentary I had seen when I was about 12 about Jonestown on that would have been maybe the, oh, it was probably the 10th anniversary of Jonestown. We watched this documentary and it was just this sort of lurid horror story and all these all these bodies lying in a field. And that's what I thought of when I thought of the word cult. I thought of Jonestown, I thought of Waco, I thought of Heaven's Gate. And I didn't, I didn't have any idea that really a cult is just a set of interlocking patterns that combine to strip the individual self-trust. And that pattern can apply in so many different settings. It doesn't have to be as extreme as Jonestown. Sometimes I talk about there being a continuum in the cult world from zero to Jonestown. And there are so many groups that fall somewhere in between. Right. Well, and that's sort of what the the tricky thing about it is that, one, people who are involved in a group don't feel that they're in, that they've lost their own personal power. Uh, They feel that they actually are empowered by the power of the group itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I lived at Dendik, I believe we were starting a revolution to save the world from ecocide and create a new culture. I thought I was much more powerful than I would have been on my own. Well, and so what, you know, what's again tricky to me is that so many of the things that they did were positive, you know, the, um, raising vegetables and growing your own mm-hmm. food and you know working together to build something is very powerful and it should be a good thing but um there were all these signals that probably because you were there and part of it you you had to overlook you know you had to kind of personal decide to not be worried about the signals that you were getting that something wasn't exactly right Right. And once I gave the Zendix all my money, which happened only about two weeks after my arrival, and it was a substantial amount of money because I had won a traveling fellowship before I graduated from college. Once I handed over the money, I was, I was committed. Right. I, I, that was my pledge that I was going to stay for life. And I would... I, I was willing to do just about anything to assure myself that I hadn't made a terrible mistake. Right. Well, of course, you know, with the the person reading the book, especially someone like me, I'm you know I'm a parent and I have kids who are uh, you know who are probably in similar could have been in a similar situation. I keep and I was when I was reading that I was saying no no don't do that don't give them the money you know it's like that that's the thing you would tell somebody. No, you have to stop. Think about this. This is like when, as soon as somebody starts asking for your money, you know that it's a problem. Right. Yeah. But I wasn't really talking to, to people outside the farm. 
I mean, from the time I arrived, this was in the backwoods of Polk County in Western North Carolina. I was picked up at the bus station. I was driven to the farm. I didn't have a car and I didn't even know how to drive since I had grown up in New York City. And I wasn't forbidden to stay in touch with my family or old friends or anything. But my my only option for keeping in touch was calling them on the phone from the busiest room on the farm. So I, I couldn't really have private conversations. And in any case, I was so deeply, I was, I was with people almost all the time, except when I was sleeping. So I was just suddenly immersed in this world of all these people who were so clear about their beliefs. So that was a very powerful force, and I wasn't really exposed to any countervailing forces from the outside urging me to consider what I was getting myself into. Right. So, I mean, I think there are two different things that I think about. One is, um, you know, in the notion of communes, um, as I see them, they represent a, you know this the notion of cooperative cooperativism sharing um in a group and th- what i see as the what you describe in the zendic form and possibly in other situations is a more it's hierarchical but the hierarchy is um not clearly delineated to people uh, clearly enough delineated in other words like if you're saying if if one was looking at a commune situation and saying i want to be in a group where we all work together and we have equal say and you know in a sense you could lead toward equal ownership uh, that structure is very different from the one that they had at zendik and i'm wondering if that if were were you aware of that at that time or is that something you only realized later well, when I arrived, I my default ex- expectation was that people were basically equal. I knew that Errol and Wolf, this couple, I knew that they had founded the farm and you know they had been there for a long time, but I didn't know that there was a hierarchy. I found that out after I had given them all my money. There was actually an explicit hierarchy with levels. Each person wore a colored wristband showing what level they were. But I had no I had no idea about that. And that is one big difference between a cult and a commune. I don't call Zendika commune, even though plenty of communal studies scholars do, and even though we did share a lot and live together and eat meals together and everything. I don't call it a commune because I define a commune as a place where there's shared control of money, shared ownership of land, and shared governance. Right. And Zenik didn't have that. And 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 it was not possible to know before you showed up exactly how Zenik worked. Whereas there are other true communes in the United States, like Twin Oaks in Virginia and East Wind in Missouri, where it is possible to know before you show up how things work. And it's not that in those places, everyone has an equal say. It makes sense that if you, if you just shown up, 
you're not going to have as much of a say as someone who's been there for a long time. And there are, there are elected offices, people who are, who are given the responsibility of, of, of running, of running things, you know, in a more dedicated way, but it's possible to know that up front. And in a cult like Zendik, it's not possible to know that up front. You're not going to get a straight answer about how things work. Right. No, and that, I think that's the, that was the, yeah, you stated it better than I did. I was kind of trying to get at that. Thinking about, you know, for people like you at that, at that time when you were 22 years old, not being able to understand that or having enough knowledge or um, experience, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, that made you kind of available to them. And I assume that that is how cults operate, not necessarily always with young, it's not the age of the person, but it's their, um, uh, their you know, the ability of the cult to manipulate them. Uh, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, whether it's experience or you know re- emotional uh, uh, openness to being manipulated or whatever it is, and of course you know today in in our you know it's hard not to think of that in terms of uh, political groups you know political organizations so, you know think about the the way the Nazi Party operated or the way the Communist Party operated in um, uh, in Europe. I was just reading an mm-hmm. article by. Um, and Applebaum in the Atlantic about the difference between people in the East German Communist Party, the people who stayed and accepted the unfairness and the kind of bad, bad, bad acting of the group versus the people who left. Um, you know, people make compromises of their values in order to stay. Yeah. Whatever social yeah. or material or spiritual or philosophical benefits they get, they they remain. And I think mm-hmm. of, that's a form of cult, cultism as well. It's a different kind in a way, but the psychological levers and the political levers seem to be operating uh, concurrently there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that seems to be true of um, smaller scale cults like Zendik or, you know, even the bigger religious ones. Wherever there's a guru or wherever there's somebody at the top uh, creating a hierarchy, um, then that seems to be where the problem always lies. Right. And then there are also these these interlocking mechanisms that make it really hard for the rank and file member to question or object. Like at Zendik, I, once I had given my money away, I didn't have money. So if I, if I wanted to leave, like that was not going to be easy. And we had these, these patterns of criticism, we called it input. So if I were to, if I were to even make any, any noise, you know, objecting to something that Errol said, it would immediately be shot down. So within, when you put all those, all those patterns together, it just, it became, it became very hard um, to even, really even to think critical thoughts, much less act on them. Right. All right. So do you feel like once you were out, did you, do you have this sort of feeling of surrealness about what you had gone through that it was 
you you kind of wonder how did that happen to me? Who was I? How did how did I get here? You know, it's like afterwards. What what is your feeling? Both then, immediately after, but now it's been much longer. You know, you've had fifteen years to yeah. essentially recover to yeah. be to learn who you are, to be yourself, to recover your being. Um, what do you you know? How does that how does that work? Well, when I when I first dis- discovered that Zendik was a cult, that didn't happen till more than a year after I physically departed Zendik. When I physically departed, I was still a true believer. I had been expelled. So it took me a while to get the cult memo. Once I did get it, I felt absolutely overjoyed. I felt happier than I'd ever been in my life. I felt like I'd been carrying around this huge boulder for years and suddenly it had dropped from my shoulders. And and part of what compelled me to write the book was this feeling that I had experienced two miracles. The first miracle was that I had colluded with a few dozen other people to create this false story that felt absolutely real. I mean, that's an amazing thing. That is an amazing testament to the power of the human mind and the power of stories to be able to do that. And the second miracle was that I had gotten out and that I was free. So that was that was my feeling when I first had this immense shift in my story. Then over the years, I feel like I basically composted that experience that <laughs> at first it was just this pile of stinky traumatic guck. And I kept turning my pile by writing, by having conversations with fellow exendics, by educating myself about the cult pattern and so on. And over the years, I was able to turn this pile of stinky guck into a source of fertility, a source of understanding of myself, of this group I was part of, and also to some degree of the larger culture, which is the soil in which the weeds of these cults grows. The the plants that show up in in a certain patch of soil um, are not not separate from it. I mean, it's, it's, it's the soil that creates the conditions. Right. So I think that cults can actually tell us something about what is missing from our culture. Right. I, no, I think that's actually a fair point. And it's one of the reasons why the cults are so powerful. I, you know, I, I like the idea of it being a story, you know, that because we humans, we are storytellers and stories right. both explain things to us and also help us explain to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I, you know, it is interesting to, to realize that uh, people in a sense are feeling this lack of belonging. You know, we're alienated from the earth. We're alienated from uh, uh, culture. We're alienated from ourselves. And so I think that's cults, are one of the responses to that. They give people uh, a story. They give people a sense of belonging mm-hmm. um, and a structure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so it's, it, you know, this, what you come away from there is that, you know, it's not that a cult is evil. It's just, it's kind of like a, uh, maybe your analogy of a plant, a weed, you know, it's it's a plant that does 
it does grow. It has value, but it's not uh, uh, creative. It's it's more destructive than creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can also see see cults just as as symptoms in the same way that you could see the coronavirus and all the havoc it's causing as a symptom of underlying disrespect for the ecology and underlying economic inequality, you can see cults as symptoms of a, of a disease of lack of tribe and lack of interdependence on a village scale. And also, I would say, lack of a sense that we can change things like living in a in a country as huge as the United States it's it's so easy to fall into the idea well I can change my consumer choices I can change how I spend my money I can and I can vote for this candidate but what is there what what is there in the middle and I feel like humans really deeply need to be able to collaborate in a in, in a in a manageably sized group to take collective action, and so in a cult, you you become part of a sort of tribe sized group, and to a degree, you are collaborating to actually do things. Like at Zendik, we collaborated to build our buildings and such, and then added to that is the illusion that your tribe is also creating a new culture or creating a movement that is going to save the planet or otherwise accomplish something amazing. Right. Well, the, yeah, the goals were at Zendik, I think the goals sounded really good. Um, yeah. And they, you know, they, they had, they, they, they said things that people can actually um, take, uh, take as sacramental, you know, they're really powerful, but mm-hmm. you know, the, the underlying structure was not, uh, aligned with the the message, um, right. and that and that's sort of the betrayal of the idea of communalism. Um, mm-hmm. But it is. I, I think you're right. I think that we need to have uh, redefined re, to be able to redefine our relationships to each other and to the planet. Uh, but it's very that it is so hard. Um, you know, I it, yeah. it, it we no one yet has figured out how we're going to do that. This you know, there's a lot of talk about. And I agree with you. I think that the uh, the messaging we are getting on a kind of regular basis is that we really need to change in a big way. And uh, you know, at various times, I've thought that it was actually possible for that to happen, uh, but it it just seems that every time we try to make change, um, you know, other other things happen to waylay, or we just don't know what to do. Um, you know, I think that is a big problem. Uh, that mm. the, we just don't know what the better way of doing things is with the number, the size, the scale, the number of people that we have. It's really hard to um, uh, recreate the relationships that we have on a scale that's greater than the very small relationships that you have in a small group. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are doing that. There are, you know, things like the co-housing movement and communal. There are communes that are functional and right. cooperative uh, organizations and groups that actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, you know, we don't see that translated into uh, large-scale uh, 
political, socio-political, economic change. That's the that's the hard part, I think. Right, and it's also possible that that kind of change can't happen so long as there is this mammoth federal government attempting to control pockets of local activity. I mean, how how I how I see truly healing change happening is through a breakup of this huge entity into smaller entities, into bioregions where where people are responding to the places where they live and where the scale is small enough that people can actually have a say. Yep, I agree. I think that actually... <laughs> yeah, a biogeographically based uh, organization of humans is the only plausible future, and that you know it's you, you can you, if you look at all the geographical region regionality that you can either do it as um, ecosystems or as geographical groupings. But yes, I think in America, everywhere in the world, you would change the way that. Um, uh, social organization operated. It would be based on where people live and commonality of environmental uh, imperatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, getting there would it, that's that is a really that's not an easy thing either. No, but that that's I would say that's where crisis comes in. I think crisis is the thing that shows up to force human beings to do things that we really want to do, but we'll never choose to do on our own. You know, in the same way, a crisis had to come along and kick me out of Zendix. I would not have left on my own. I, I, I think that that's, and of course, we are in we are in a series of crises at the moment that are that are pushing us, and maybe we don't know exactly where we're going. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we have to know. I think that the crises will keep on coming until we get the message. I think so. I think actually the crisis the crisis will do that until the issue is resolved. And it mm-hmm. won't necessarily be resolved in any way that we can imagine or foresee uh or control for that matter. Right. I think yeah. it is it, it it's this is not a I think control actually is the enemy of the good. Uh, yeah, and human beings, we do want to control. I mean, that is, mm-hmm. that's really, humans are very much interested in controlling. We want to control our environment. We want to control our day to day lives. And that's, that, that desire is so deep rooted. Um, it is also part of the disaster that we've created for ourselves mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, we don't have control. Right, and that's literally, I think, to me, the one of the problems is that we just are not willing to give up, you know, control, power, whatever you want to call it. Um, Whoever has control wants to keep it. Whoever has power wants to keep it. And Mm -hmm. the crisis, I think, that you're talking about is one that has to um, cause a relinquish relinquishment of power and control. Yeah, and and the return of of listening, you know, of of listening to the air and the water and the soil and the wild animals and each other, and listening to our bodies. You know, that's one thing. One thing I learned 
from Zendik is that my body is incredibly wise. When I showed up at Zendik, I had some serious bodily reactions that I totally ignored. But I think that there's just there's just so much knowing in ourselves as beings who who come from the earth. Like we know what we need and what we need to do. And these artificial systems, including the money system and the, you know, the money economy kind of step in to interrupt that and to attempt to control and, you know, direct our energies towards this shiny bauble and this career and, and the need to just make money, you know, simply to get food and shelter. Yep. I agree. It is, uh, (laughs) I think it's really, um, it's. I think it's a really interesting moment for us, and I and I think actually your discussion of cultism does literally apply because we have a portion of our society today who I think are in you know in a lot of people are in cults whether they know it or not, but the mm-hmm. the the behavior of uh, political organizations is very cult like. Uh, and disempowering to individuals um, in order to get get them to uh, behave in a certain way, and you know the cult is about control. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it it that relates to what we were talking about. If you want to give give up, if you want to break down control, you have to break people out of cultism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also there's the the larger cultish belief in the infinite growth myth that we can just keep extracting from the earth and from the commons and from each other to grow the the finance economy indefinitely. And that's something that I've really been struck by as I've read and listened to coverage of the of the coronavirus crisis so much focus on the economy and there's no money for this and there's no money for that. And I just had this like really deep feeling of money as this layer on top and the economy as this layer on top, because, you know, on, on the, on the basic level of, you know, air and water and soil, really not much has changed. The farms are still there, the, 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 the people, the skills, the talents, the energy, the relationships. Yes, there are interruptions in those things, but, but everything is still there. And when I hear people talking about the health of the economy, I just think, well, what about the health of the human beings, the health of the communities, the health of the villages? that want to be born. And so this, this, this whole, this whole, this whole money thing and, and the infinite growth myth and, and industrial civilization as a whole, to me, that, that registers as sort of a totalizing story that you can't step out of, you know, if if you were to, if you were to say, I would like to leave the money economy, well, good luck. You're going to have to probably lose touch with everyone you care about if you really want to do that because you're going to have to go go someplace where you can rely on the land to meet all your needs and since the commons have been so severely compromised that would probably mean going off to Alaska like like Chris McCandless and into the wild you know it's 
it's that, that that's really what I see as the the bigger cultish story than any individual political party's stance. No, that's a fair point. I think it's interesting to look at the um, you know you can't leave that economy uh, or that behavior just by saying you want to do it. And mm-hmm. um, it does require so it makes it really comp- really difficult because you have to, in order to change from an extraction economy to a sustainability economy, people have to radically alter not only their mindsets but their actual behaviors. And mm-hmm. we have to think differently about what is, you know, how we're going to live on the earth, how we're going to live mm-hmm. together. Uh, but that is the challenge. That is absolutely the challenge for all of us right now. And I think it's really good that you've uh, really highlighted the um, the cr- current crisis in that way. I think it makes sense to start thinking about how do we make how do we then go from this to something different, mm-hmm. and that that that's the hard part. But I think we've got to we got to do it. Yeah, and part of how we how we do that is creating new stories, new ways of understanding what's important. I mean, even the GDP that's a story of what's important. Right. And there are places where they have the gross national happiness product or something like that. Right. But that's, I mean, that's not the answer, but it's a step in the right direction to actually put your focus on measuring something, something more nuanced and something more based in, in life than the amount of stuff and the amount of financial wealth produced by a country every year. Right. Well, if you want to get out of a com- commodity mindset, you have to stop thinking of product. Mm-hmm. You know, we're it, we're human beings are commodities in this in that sense. And mm-hmm. um, if we want to stop being commodities, we have to stop allowing ourselves to be defined as commodities. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, we've gone from a your story to a much bigger story, but I really appreciate that we had this conversation, and I want to thank you for uh, spending some time together uh, talking about it. Uh, this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I've been talking to Helen Zuman about mating in captivity, but we've really been talking about a lot more, and I really thank you for spending the time. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's been wonderfully wide-ranging. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Take care. Mm-hmm.